This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 346, August the 30th, 1995. In this session, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdooney, and I will continue our discussion of books. And I'd like to begin uh, with a point that Andrew uh, raised about Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. It was a very limited work because he was so judgmental on Christianity and on theology and other subjects where he was totally ignorant. It is a classic of scholarship in that where the politics was concerned, his knowledge was encyclopedic. We have a number of works that were produced in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries that represented a great deal of uh, scholarship but a minimal amount of interest to us. I would say those by some American scholars on Spain and the Spanish Empire are the best, Prescott, Robertson, and the like. But one of the problems with some of these works dealing with Greece and Rome was that we had in the era from the Enlightenment until the present and still continuing to a limited degree a virtual idolatry where things Greek and Roman were concerned. I cannot recall at the moment the author, the name escapes me, but I have his set at home, I think in about ten volumes, on the history of Greece. I've read in it, I've never read the set, because it tells more about Greece than anyone would want to know. I doubt that even specialists in the field will now sit down and read that huge set. Because for one thing, a basic premise is that here it happened. This is the great moment in human history and I'm going to describe it for you in very painstaking detail. Well, it is a form of idolatry and that sort of thing has diminished as far as Greece and Rome are concerned. I'd like to go on to another book now and this, by a writer, immensely readable, disliked by many professional historians because he was popular and well-read. And I would agree that uh, very often the popularizers overlook certain things and do not give the right uh, emphasis. But Harold Lamb was a good writer. And in this book, published in 1957, he wrote on the title, Constantinople, Birth of an Empire. It is in part about Justinian and Theodora, but he wrote another book about them. In this, he concentrates on the city and to a very large extent on Justinian and his life as centered upon the city of Constantinople, Byzantium. His motto for the book tells you his whole premise. It's taken from a letter uh, by a Confederate soldier written shortly before his death. What the letter was talking about, I don't know. But this sentence in it is marvelous. Men who saw night coming down about them 
could somehow act as if they stood at the edge of dawn. Men who saw night coming down about them could somehow act as if they stood at the edge of dawn. Tremendous statement. And I think that describes Justinian, Theodora, his empress, and the brilliant group of men around him. Now, Justinian did have some scoundrels that rose to high places whom he trusted. But when you look over the role of men that he had, it's amazing. More than a few of them have had uh, books written about them because their attainment was so great. Certainly, uh, he had some of the most uh, amazing uh, generals especially Belisarius. Belisarius was one of the great men of history. Very simple man in anything not military. But put him in a military situation and he was a genius. He could uh, think exactly as the enemy thought. Put himself in their place. He understood the diverse peoples and with an unerring instinct knew what to do when the odds were against him. Well, Rome had fallen. The Eastern Empire was crumbling. It was surrounded on all sides by people who saw this very wealthy center and wanted to take that. It was like a pot of gold they were all attracted to. And here was a man who was concerned with rebuilding the whole world. The Code of Justinian is spoken of as a codification of Roman law. It was more than that. It was to a great extent the Christianization of Roman law, especially where family law was concerned. And there Theodora took a hand and saw to it that only the biblical view of sexuality was the law. The geniuses he gathered around him were remarkable. For example, Narcissus the last person you would expect to uh, be so brilliant and selfless. He was a young Armenian of a prominent family whom some enemies of the family or of himself personally when he was a teenager grabbed a hold of and castrated. Now, he was on the, in the border areas, and who it was, he never said. But he left, went to Byzantium, very quickly rose to considerable authority under Justinian. Without any knowledge of anything military, Narcissus, at the age of 70, took over in a crisis and drove the barbarians out of Italy with one brilliant strategy after another. Justinian had an instinct for people like that. He wasn't infallible. He made mistakes. But he was mostly right. One of my, well, two of my favorite episodes. When rioting led to a revolution in Constantinople, and Belisarius with the palace guards had no way of getting out of the palace. The mobs were there ready to destroy them all and they decided on the other side they had a ship on the front of the Dardanelles of the Bosphorus and 
they would escape, go to North Africa or Italy and try to regroup, although it seemed impossible. It was really a retreat and a surrender. So as they got ready to board the ship, the Empress Theodora sat down and she said, one who puts on the purple should never take it off. In other words, I'm staying. And they looked at each other helplessly. Neither Justinian nor Belisarius nor anyone else wanted to pick her up. She was a small thing and carry her aboard. They knew she wouldn't stay. And they felt ashamed. So they looked at each other and they said, well, let's go down fighting. So they opened the gate, the huge doorway, where the mob was piled, trying to break it down and uh, charge them. Well, with that, the mob panicked. They couldn't imagine a handful of men there in the palace charging all of them. And they assumed there must be something here. More men or something have landed. So they panicked and they killed one another, struggling to run. And after that, it was just a slaughter by Belisarius. They regained power and nobody ever rioted or started a revolt again. The other, when Theodora was dead, Belisarius, old and retired on his farm, and Justinian, an old man. The enemies were all around them on the African, Italian, Persian fronts, and their armies were all out. Nobody there in the capital. And suddenly they received word that just across the straits, a little ways up, this would be what we would call Greece and the Balkans, <coughs> these barbarians out of Central Asia were coming in. And it was going to be a walk-in. Nobody to fight them, nobody to resist them. They did not even have a police force in those days. So Justinian sent word to Belisarius to come. And he got his old war horse, saddled it, and came, and had trumpeters go out all over the city, summoning any of his veterans who were still functioning to come. And they came, about 300 of them, I believe, old men, some of them rushing to get there, still had their aprons on because <laughs> they were tending bar, waiting on tables. Others were babysitters for their grandchildren, and so on and on. And as he walked up and down the line of men, he stopped in front of one, waved his hand before his eyes, and realized the man was totally blind. So he said to him, Focus, if we get some young recruits, you can tell them how we fought in the old days. So he took these old men, got horses from the circus for them to ride on and uh, was taken across the straits and moved towards the area where they were, the Huns, or what, I forget whether they were Huns or Avars. I don't recall. But at any rate, the barbarians. And they spotted them as they looked through this narrow valley, very narrow with mountains heavily wooded coming down to form a little narrow draw. 
And before they went out into the open, he sent a hundred men up into the high area on one side and a hundred on the other and stayed there with the other hundred to give them signals. And he told them what to do. Well, then he appeared in the open and the Hun or barbarian leaders, when they saw, even from a distance, what was obviously a group of paunchy old men on horses, laughed. It seemed to be such a joke that these men would dare to come out after them. So they sent out a handful of men to wipe them out. At that point, they began to hear the clank of armor because he had told them, rattle your pots and pans, your uh, canteens against your armor as much as possible, uh, which they did on both sides behind the trees. And from uh, hidden places started a shower of arrows with their old accuracy and brought down men in great numbers and uh, immediately the barbarians panicked. They started to scream, It's a trap! It's a trap! The real men are up there, behind the trees! So they started to run. And they killed each other in their panicky fight. Well, Belisarius knew the barbarians. And he knew their courage, as well as their disorganization and their readiness to panic and how it would communicate. So they chased him for a time and concluded they probably wouldn't stop running until they were in Central Asia. (laughs) And with that, Belisarius passes from history. He was briefly imprisoned because they were afraid that with his power, with a populace. After that victory, if he said, I want to be emperor, he could be emperor. But after a few weeks, Justinian let him loose, and Velisarius went back to his farm and a little later died there. Well, Velisarius, Narses, Theodora, Justinian, and all the others associated with them did not see themselves as in the twilight of civilization. They saw themselves as the builders of a new world. They saw the dawn of history with them, and they accomplished great things. It is unfortunate that Byzantine history is not studied more. One of the things that was stressed early and very heavily stressed by Justinian was a sound currency, a gold soldat that would never vary. And you can find the Byzantine currency as far afield as East Asia and all through Europe among the barbarians. Why? Because it had value. And people wanted it. It made Byzantium the center of world trade. And anyone who had any dealings there or worked with them, like the Venetians, gained great power. That's how Venice later on became a great industrial force. About a hundred years before Byzantium fell, a foolish emperor adulterated their gold coins. And after that, it was all downhill for Byzantium. He did it because the Battle of Manzikert was a great defeat for them. 
But the greater defeat was his adulteration of the currency to pay for the costs of the war. Well, the men of dawn, I like this because of that emphasis by Harold Lamb. And I would say right now as the world is falling apart, we have to be the men who see it not only as the twilight of a world, the world of humanism, the world of the state, but the dawn of a Christian order. Yes. Well, let's turn now briefly to another book, a recent one, Published in 1988, the author Louise J. Kaplan, and the title of it is The Family Romance of the Imposter Poet, Thomas Chatterton. Well, first, I'm sorry, do you have any comments or questions about uh, the book on Constantinople and Justinian, Belisarius, and the others? We seem to be able to learn from history, and my question is, why can't we? Yes, a very good question. Well, one thing that stands out is that beginning with Justinian especially, although you could say in in part it began with Constantine, they had one major concern, to create a Christian order. Therefore, they had standards. They had premises. They took seriously God's law. Uh, Just measures shall ye have. And the reference is to everything beginning with money, gold and silver. Money was by weight. A shekel means a weight of gold and a weight of silver. So, that type of thing Justinian made into law. And that's what gave them a longevity. There were times in the history of Byzantium when you could have said again and again, it's all over. All over. But they survived. Because however wayward their theology was from a Reformed perspective, they did take the Word of God seriously. They did believe God's law. They tried to reestablish society in terms of it. His wife's uh, insistence on uh, going back to uh, biblical law in matters of sexuality is really a triumph of the human will. Yes, and it really uh, set the temper for the empire. And it prevailed... What she did, the codification of biblical law with regard to marriage, governed all of Europe and the United States until the 60s. It was on the books, but disregarded in many countries. But it has all been combed out of the law books now. After all these centuries, from the 500s to the 1900s, about 1,400 years. But it gave a character to the Western world. It is interesting, by the way, that uh, in this century, Theodora has gotten nothing but hostility from scholars. They don't like what she represents. There's an obsession with Greco-Roman culture, but uh, Byzantium and... The Eastern Empire gets such short shrift today, and that's largely because of what you said, Rush. I can remember even when I went to grade school that all of the teachers, uh, you know, history began with the Greeks and ended with the Romans, and that was was what we were taught. There was uh, virtually nothing on Byzantium. Well, to go back to Thomas Chatterton... When I went to school and I was at the university, we got quite a bit about the genius of 
young Chatterton, who committed suicide after he was exposed as a forger. He had produced some poems in imitation of, uh, of medieval poetry, supposedly written by a medieval priest. For a time, he gained a great deal of uh, fame and notice. There were at that time, in the 1800s, a number of uh, men who produced such forgeries. Macpherson was another. The Osian poetry was regarded as the work of an Irish bard and as equal to Homer and so on. Well, at any rate, this book is interesting to me because he remains in the English history books and you're uh, conducted in a uh, brief fashion, at least I was when I went to the university, uh, through Chatterton's writings, which I thought were very poor, but supposedly a great genius died when he committed suicide. Well, the interesting thing to me is that uh, Dr. Kaplan's research points out that he was not such a angelic boy as some regarded him. He was a young man who was totally a reprobate, apparently diseased, uh, venereally diseased. He may have uh, died of an overdose of a drug that was supposed to cure uh, syphilis or gonorrhea. On top of that, he was a pornographer. He did write uh, things uh, that were uh, designed for an off-color market. He was radically immoral. Dr. Kaplan says, and I quote, Rimbaud spoke of the poet as the great sick man, the great criminal, the great accursed. By the 20th century, the sexual moral eccentricities of poets was becoming an acceptable, indeed essential ingredient of their life histories. Unquote. I read recently a contemporary scholar who feels that uh, it is essential to be a great poet, to be somewhat mad, to be perverse. Homosexuality is a popular form of the perversity. And to be totally against everything that uh, biblical faith and morality uh, declares is right. Now, uh, would you like to comment on that? Because I think that's a key aspect to the uh, interest in Chatterton. Well, that's a, whole, uh, that's a tendency of uh, all intellectuals they, they don't want to be part of the masses. And didn't that start in the last century? There was a conscious effort to insult the masses, their morality, their education, uh, even to write in a way that uh, would be difficult to understand the meaning of their poetry uh, because they wanted people to think, I don't really fully understand what he's writing about. He must be a great intellectual. Same thing with uh, painting, impressionist painting. Yes. the same game. Um, I've heard scholars, uh, latter-day scholars, say that, uh, for instance, the Beatles and the Grateful Dead are today's poets. That's right. I think we ought to mention that, though they are today's poets. I mean, see, that's mm -hmm. the problem. With, with the rise of the middle class, it seems that um, 
intellectuals felt that they had to start insulting this new middle class because they were offended that there were so many people who now were becoming more fluent that could uh, that that reading was extremely common and they somehow wanted to separate themselves from from the masses because they didn't want to feel that the the, the masses um, should be able to read them or understand them, and so they even began insulting yes. common well, morality. I think late so last year, didn't we deal with that in Carey's book, The Intellectuals and the Masses? Yes. Some very fortuitous things came together, because right after World War II, by the time the end of the 50s came and the 60s started, we had a very affluent youth in this country who could afford to buy the records and could afford to buy the magazines, etc., that uh, the so-called latter-day poets were were putting out, and uh, they made a lot of money. I mean, uh, Jerry Garcia, who just died yeah. of the Grateful Dead, uh, uh, they figured that he uh, generated about $250 million in, in revenue just from that one band. And of course, the Beatles are legendary for the amount of money that they produced. So, compared to the poets of the the uh, the nineteenth century or the eighteenth century, uh, it was a different game. Most of those people died in penniless or lived yeah. uh, penniless and in obscurity. But today's poets live very very well. Some of them did quite well. In a, back then, I think what a lot of intellectuals did, especially the offensive type, who was kind of in your face type of uh, immorality, that the the, um, the wealthy. Uh, very often felt that they had to put up with the antics of these self-described intellectuals and they often took great advantage of the wealthy and lived off of the wealthy and mm -hmm. even even while insulting them it sure. was it was it was an effort and uh, they would sometimes insult them and then tell them they were doing them a favor by taking advantage of them because at least they were associating with a great mind well, while Plato believed in the philosopher kings, Shelley believed in the poet king. He said the poet should be the legislator of the world. Well, see, that's what rock musicians are doing today. I mean, they are the ones who, in essence, are doing the legislating uh, because they're producing a society that is evil and antinomian. And uh, I think that's something we need to take into account. When people object to what's, what on television... Uh, uh, movies, uh, music, uh, it, we, we get the same line. You're too stupid and ignorant to appreciate the art involved in this, and that we're rising above your um, petty moral or ethical concerns. That's you don't you don't appreciate great music, great art, great movies, uh, yeah. drama, etc. That's like the guy in San Francisco when I lived there who took a uh, canvas and painted it black and then got up on a letter and a uh, ladder rather and dropped white paint all over the thing, spots of white paint over there. And it, what used to tickle me was people that would walk in uh, art galleries and look at this stuff, and I don't know whether they were making it up or or what, but they would attribute great meaning to yeah, these things, yes. and they were absolutely worthless. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Well, <clears throat> according to Kaplan, to get back to Chesterton, uh, Ch uh, Chatterton, uh, in his uh, experimental satirical poems, he was formulating a free-thinking creed, and I quote, libertine sexuality, contempt for religious orthodoxy, and a scornful superiority to those ordinary mortals who are deceived by corrupt gurus peddling religious beliefs for a fee, unquote. So you can understand why Chasterton, Chatterton is still in the anthologies I have never found anybody who enjoyed Chesterton. Chatterton, I don't know why I keep <laughs> mispronouncing. I Gilbert Chesterton. Right? Yes. But uh, the scholars retain his status because he represents what they wanted. 
And the fact that uh, he was guilty of fraud is not held against him. It is interesting that even in his own day, McPherson, who was guilty of a greater literary forgery, was promoted, got along very well the rest of his life. And that's why Kaplan may be right that uh, Chatterton's death was accidental, an overdose, because he was dosing himself with some dangerous drugs trying to cure himself. Well, now I want to get on to a book I refer to every now and then. I, I love it. It was first written when Napoleon was alive. It was written by Richard Waitley, a professor of logic and an archbishop in the uh, Church of England. The title, Historic Doubts Relative to Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> now, the book was written to show that the methods used by the early uh, radical scholars in biblical studies to show that Jesus probably never lived and that the books are not historical and are not trustworthy and they're tearing the whole of the Bible apart especially the life of Christ they were concentrating on that well in a few years there was a German scholar who produced a book in which he ridiculed the belief that any such person as Jesus had ever lived. But that kind of thinking was already prevalent in Waitley's day. So what he did was to take the methodology that these people applied to the Bible and applied it to someone who was living, Napoleon Bonaparte. And he proved that there was no ground whatsoever for believing that Napoleon Bonaparte had ever lived or was alive. All the sources were very, very dubious, untrustworthy sources. So it was obvious. It was a myth. His account was so compelling that... Uh, there were people in his day who actually concluded that the British Foreign Office had concocted uh, the myth of Napoleon in order to wage war. And so it was a giant conspiracy against the British public. But it is a gem. If uh, you can find it, and periodically it comes back into print, this is uh, an edited version by a professor, uh, Ralph S. Uh, Pomeroy, a professor at the University of California in Davis. But it's better to get uh, an unedited version with all of uh, Waitley's footnotes. They're a joy to read. And uh, it was so convincing that this book became a kind of forgotten classic almost from the beginning because it was forgotten because nobody wanted to face up to it. It sounds like a textbook of disinformation. I mean, history is littered yes. with examples of this disinformation technique right up to the current time. I mean, there was a there was an attempt here a few years ago to disprove that uh, men went to the moon, that the Apollo program was just a sham. It was all done with television and, and uh, uh, graphics, pictures. Well, Waitley was a uh, very astute man. The same thing could be done today as you pointed it out. But uh, his concern was to say, look, if you doubt Jesus, uh, 
then you have to be ready to doubt everything in history. Because I can tell you that the evidence is more convincing uh, for the life of Christ than it is for the life of people living today. One of uh, Waitley's favorite New Testament verses, <coughs> which he often quoted or alluded to in his writings, was 1 Peter 3.15. And Christians are there told to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Well, we have uh, a little time yet, and I think I can squeeze in these last two books. One is currently in print, and the other is an old book, Forgotten, both about Walt Whitman. Now, Walt Whitman, according to uh, Kaplan, a century after Chatterton was shown to be a fake, a forger. And after Osan was proven to be a fake and a forger, nonetheless modeled himself after Osan and would sit and read Osan with rapture. Well, Walt Whitman's America is by a current professor, David S. Reynolds, Walt Whitman's America, a cultural biography, published in 1995. It is full of details, but not every kind of detail. He does bring out what a recent book scarcely noticed, documented at some length, that Walt Whitman as a young man and a school teacher was run out of town, in fact tarred and feathered and run out of town as a child molester. And since his poetry and his life was full of homosexuality, there is no reason to doubt the truth of that charge. Moreover, what uh, Reynolds and his book on Walt Whitman's America lacks is any judgment on anything about Whitman. He regards him as a, a great American poet, of course. But even when Walt Whitman first published Leaves of Grass and at the time of his death, his poetry was never popular. The all-American poet in terms of popularity was Longfellow. And... Uh, the intellectuals, the cynics, the skeptics, heavily promoted the works of Whitman, but they never have caught on. If they were not sold to university students because they have to read Whitman in American literature, he'd be a forgotten poet in a hurry. That's probably why there's no judgments in the book. He wanted to sell it as a university text. <laughs> <laughs> One of the interesting things that uh, he never refers to, Reynolds that is, is the Christ picture. He saw what he wrote almost as a new gospel, if not actually as one, and had his picture taken as a Christ. Mm. A photograph. Another false idol. Yes. Another thing of interest, and the pictures are abundant, uh, is that uh, 
he was very much a dude as a young man. Mm. And until he decided he was some kind of prophet of humanism of the new age, he was a dandy. But once he decided that he was going to be the prophet of the people, a man of the people and a prophet of the people, he put aside his uh, fancy clothes and began to dress like a worker. Now, I referred to this other book written by another scholar a good many years ago, a very brilliant scholar, but she became a non-person with this book, which was published in 1993 and again in 1936, excuse me, and again in 1938, titled Walt Whitman's Pose. Well, what was wrong with this book? I can recall the contempt expressed at Berkeley by professors in the English department for this book. She calls uh, attention to the fact that, among other things, Walt Whitman read a translated novel by George Sand. In that novel, there was a uh, uh, rough-hewn peasant who went around spewing prophecies and poetry that described the new world that was coming, the democratic man, the age of freedom in every sphere. And so he not only uh, reproduced some of the language of George Sand's poet, he imitated the person of that prophet. And Dr. Shepard demonstrated what he had done. And that was enough to make her persona non grata. Now it is interesting that in a long, long book, let me see how long Reynolds' book is, 671, 671 pages, not one reference to George Sand or Dr. Esther, Esther Shepard. So, while he admits the evidence for the child molestation is true, he pooh-poohs it and moves on. And he goes over the evidence for his homosexuality, but with a light touch and without any condemnation. But he will not touch on Esther Shepard's work. Nor is Osian ever mentioned, or Macpherson, or any other forger in his work. And with good reason, because Walt Whitman was following in their footsteps, but in a different age, an age when people were more receptive to that sort of thing and more ready to go along with it. So Walt Whitman's America is the America that uh, we've had since the 60s on the seamy side. And it's all a marvelous thing and we have this great poet who is the prophet of the age of democratic man. Well, I just they picked him for the shill for for uh, humanism. Uh, you know, there's an enormous amount of hypocrisy here. I remember in the 50s, late 50s, after I got out of high school, that uh, kids were being taught to. Uh, uh, you know, be against what their parents were for, and uh, the the beginnings of that whole movement to tear down the link between the the generations and create the so-called generation gap, uh, and all of these so-called poets of the age that came along, the the Beatles and uh, the 
Grateful Dead and all of these people, they were all, you know, talking about Marxist anti-materialism, you know, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, don't don't buy into what your your parents have bought into, uh, and yet every single one of them became enormously wealthy. The Beatles became enormously mm -hmm. wealthy. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, the Grateful Dead became enormously wealthy. All of those people who were preaching this Marxist anti-materialism all socked it away. Yes. And yet nobody ever says anything about it. Yes. And just like the guy who wrote this book, yes. uh, David Reynolds, you know, writing this thing without any critical comment, leaving out uh, important references and other works in 671 pages. I mean, the only thing that guy's interested in is selling that as a textbook in a university. To, and, and he, the, the publisher has probably told him what he had to do in order to accomplish that. So it's all hypocrisy the I whole last 30 years, 35 years. I don't think the publisher had to tell him. I think his whole perspective is uh, in terms of literary criticism, not moral criticism. That's dropped out. Mm -hmm. Moral criticism is now taboo. They claim to be values neutral, but of course we know, as Van Til and you have taught us, Rush, it's a total impossibility. Yes. People that are values neutral, of course, are already set against God, and uh, you're right about so much modern literary criticism. So that's precisely what it is. They're at war with God. Plus, there's a, a degree of revisionism. They want to refashion people historically in their own image, the present yes. day. Well, I uh, got Reynolds' book because I thought, here we will have an account that will delve into the seamy side that Whitman represents and has been used to camouflage in this country. But it was a thorough disappointment. I, I've read most of the book. I'm not going to bother to finish it because it's very obvious what its perspective is. And this has become literary criticism now. It has become history. The only time there is a moral criticism, it's of the right for bringing up moral issues. Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass is supposed to be the great American classic. And uh, it is a low point, I believe, in American literature. Well, we've gone through... Uh Misinformation, disinformation, and now we've gotten to no information. <laughs> yes, very well put. Well, speaking of literary criticism with deconstruction, now you have the complete, complete destruction of information, yeah. destruction of meaning. Mm -hmm. Yes, meaning does not exist, supposedly. Well, our time is about up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. If you want to comment on this or any other tape and on areas you'd like to have us cover, don't hesitate to write in. We can't promise that we know enough about what you're interested in uh, to talk more than two, three minutes about it, <laughs> so we may not be able to discuss it, but we will do our best.